In our current series, True Crimes Bible Edition 2, we're investigating more crimes in the Bible. We're exploring the who, what, and why of each crime. But more importantly, we want to learn how the Lord God responded to each of these crimes, as well as what we can learn from them. But before we get to today's episode, I want to thank those of you who support Time of Grace by engaging with the many different kinds of Bible content we offer, by telling your friends and relatives about Time of Grace, and by financially supporting the work we do. Thank you from all of us at Time of Grace. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. Okay, let's get started. This is the third episode involving the members of Jacob's family. In the first episode, we investigated the crime committed against Jacob's only daughter, Dinah and the brutal retaliation of her brothers. In our last episode, we investigated the crime committed against Joseph by his ten older brothers. The crime? Human trafficking. In today's episode, the story of Joseph is interrupted with a complicated and sordid tale of broken promises, deception, prostitution, and immorality. This crime involved Jacob's son, Judah, and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. The big takeaway from today's episode will be God's undeserved grace, with an emphasis on undeserved. In order to understand the events of this story, we first need to wrap our heads around a marriage practice among God's Old Testament people. It was known as Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage was a type of marriage in which the brother of a deceased man was obligated to marry his brother's widow. A Leverite marriage was a good thing because it provided support and protection to the widow and ensured the survival of the deceased man's clan with the birth of a son. The firstborn son of the widow and her brother-in-law would actually become the heir of the deceased husband, not the brother-in-law. That's how Leverite marriage worked. The birth of a son to a widow ensured that the clan would carry on. The term Leverite is derived from the Latin word lever, which means husband's brother. And did you know that Leverite marriage is still practiced today in various parts of the world? I never knew that. I learned that there were tribal communities in East Asia as well as in several countries on the African continent that still practice some form of Leverite marriage. And that's what's at the heart of our story today, the practice of Leverite marriage. 
Although the story of Judah and Tamar occurred hundreds of years before the Lord God established Leverite marriage as part of his covenant law given to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, it was practiced among Jacob's family. When we eventually get to Mount Sinai, the Lord God included Leverite marriage in his covenant law for his chosen people. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, we learn about it. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. What follows next indicates that God was serious about Leverite marriage being honored because there were consequences for a brother who wasn't willing to marry his sister-in-law. And we're going to see that play out in our story today. Here's what the Lord God said also at Mount Sinai. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. The man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Being called the family of the unsandaled was not a compliment. God established Leverite marriage as part of his law, and he wanted it carried out. Okay, let's get to the crimes of Judah and Tamar. Genesis chapter 38 begins by telling us about Jacob's son Judah. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. Now, for whatever reason, Judah left his brothers some time after they had sold Joseph into slavery and went to live in Adullam. Adullam was located about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. In the Bible, Adullam is probably best known as the place where David had his headquarters when he was living as a fugitive from Saul. There were caves in the Adullam area that David and his 400 men used as their camp. Let's pause here for a moment. In our last episode, I talked about the Toledoths in the book of Genesis, the genealogies of the patriarchs. In Genesis chapter 37, the Toledoth of Jacob's descendants begins and continues through chapter 50, the last chapter in Genesis. And it's all about Joseph. Genesis 
chapter 37 ends with Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers and that he was then purchased by an Egyptian named Potiphar. Two chapters later, chapter 39, begins with the story of Joseph in Potiphar's household. In between these two chapters is the story of Judah and Tamar. So, why is the account of Joseph's life interrupted with the story of Judah and Tamar? There doesn't immediately seem to be a connection. But I believe that there are multiple connections. There is a clue for us in what we just read. Judah married a Canaanite. Recall that the Lord God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants would be a great nation and the chosen people of God. The Lord God had set them apart as his people. But how would they remain set apart if they started intermarrying with the people living in Canaan, like Judah did? Well, our God had a plan that involved Joseph. That plan would eventually lead to Jacob's clan moving to Egypt, away from the pagan Canaanites. With the move to Egypt, the Israelites could become that great nation without intermarrying with pagan people. But what about the possibility of intermarriage with the Egyptians? Well, that was highly unlikely. The Egyptians detested the Israelites. They wanted nothing to do with people who weren't Egyptians. That's, why, that's one reason why they isolated the Israelites in the land of Goshen up north. It seems to me that because Judah married a Canaanite woman and Jacob's other sons might do the same, the Lord God had already put in motion his plan to move his people to Egypt. And that plan had everything to do with Joseph being in Egypt. So, is there a connection between the bigger story of Joseph and the story of Judah and Tamar? I believe so. So, Judah married a Canaanite woman, and together they had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. When his son Ur grew up and became of marriageable age, Judah got a wife for him a woman named Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. The Bible doesn't give us any details about Ur's wicked life, but it was of such a degree that the Lord God ended his life. So now Tamar was a widow without a child. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. This would be an example of a lover-right marriage. And any child born to Tamar would in fact be considered a child of Ur, Onan's now deceased brother. But the Bible goes on to tell us that Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his, his brother. The Lord God considered what Onan did to be evil, so the Lord God put him to death too. Since the second oldest son was now dead, 
the responsibility for a Leverite marriage fell to Judah's youngest son, Shelah. But apparently Shelah wasn't old enough to get married. So Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. Ah, but there was more to it than just the age of Shelah. We learn what Judah was actually thinking, for Judah thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Judah had promised to Tamar that when Shelah was old enough, he would fulfill his responsibility in a Leverite marriage. But Judah broke that promise, and in doing so, failed to fulfill his family's obligation to Tamar. By not following through with his promise, Judah was sentencing Tamar to a life without a future. Judah's failure to fulfill his obligation to Tamar also meant disobedience to the Lord God. For Tamar and for the Lord, this was a serious matter. After a long time, and we don't know how long, Judah's wife died. We're told that when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira the Adullamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. You know, just as we got some insight into Judah's thought process regarding his youngest son, Shelah, so now we get some insight into Tamar's thoughts. She had been wronged by her father-in-law, Judah. It was time to take matters into her own hands. Tamar devised the plan to entice Judah into having sex with the hope of producing an heir. She covered her face and disguised herself as a prostitute. As Judah headed to Timnah, he passed by Anayim, where Tamar was sitting. Judah was heading to Timnah for the sheep shearing of his flocks. Sheep shearing was a festive time, a time to eat, drink, and be merry. The worship rituals of the pagan Canaanite fertility gods included prostitution, so it wasn't unusual to see a prostitute sit by the roadside. Tamar used this festive time as the lure to hook Judah. When Judah saw the disguised Tamar, he thought she was a prostitute and obviously didn't realize that she was his daughter-in-law. Judah went over to her by the side of the road and propositioned her. Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a goat, a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Well, Tamar asked Judah to leave his official seal, which was attached to a cord, and his walking stick. 
as collateral for the promised goat. The seal that Judah had was likely a cylinder seal made out of stone, with a distinctive design indicating the unique owner. The stone was on a cord and often worn around the neck. Judah agreed with Tamar's demand, and the deal was done. Prostitute sex in exchange for a goat. Following this immoral encounter, Tamar changed back into her normal clothes, went home, now pregnant with Judah's child. Judah then sent a goat to the, quote, prostitute, as promised, but she couldn't be found anywhere. So Judah gave up looking for her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah was presented with Exhibit A, B, and C. It was evidence that demanded a verdict, and the verdict was guilty. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. We've already noted the crime that Judah committed against Tamar by not giving his youngest son to her in Leverite marriage. And yes, it was a cruel crime against both Tamar and God. Then we have seen Tamar engage in prostitution, and both she and Judah participating in an immoral act. To top it off, Judah was willing to burn his daughter-in-law at the stake for something she and he did. There was certainly plenty of blame to go around. But you know, there is some good news in this crime case. Judah recognized that he had wronged Tamar in withholding his son Sheila from her. He recognized that his actions had caused Tamar to engage in prostitution in order to produce an heir. Judah repented of what he had done. Both Judah's and Tamar's actions deserve God's judgment. But that's not what they received. What they received was God's undeserved mercy and grace. Totally undeserved. And how do we see God's undeserved mercy and grace play out in this story? Well, Tamar went on to give birth to twin sons, Perez and Zerah. Their birth is worth noting. As Tamar was giving birth, one of them put out his hand so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it around his wrist and said, This one came out first. But then he drew back his hand. His brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zira. Even though Zira's hand had come out first, Perez was, in fact, the firstborn. Now, does this story of twins being born remind you of another set of twins? Yes, indeed. 
Jacob, and Esau. Perez and Zerah are, in a way, the forgotten twins of the Old Testament. But they are so significant because they are part of a Bible thread that extends from Judah to Jesus. Five generations after Perez, Salmon was born into the family line, and his son was Boaz, who married Ruth the Moabitess. These two, who made their home in Bethlehem, gave birth to Obed, who fathered Jesse, David's father. Both Jesse and David were also from Bethlehem. King David was descended from the bloodline of Perez, and Jesus was descended from the bloodline of David, one day to be born of the Virgin Mary in the little town of Bethlehem. There is special significance to this story of Judah and Tamar, for in spite of the treachery and deceit, God's mercy and love ultimately prevailed. So, what do we take away from this story of Judah and Tamar? First of all, we note that there is a contrast between Joseph and Judah. In the very next chapter, Joseph found himself in a position where he had to decide how to respond to the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife. He chose to act according to God's moral way, and sadly, it landed him in prison. That's quite a contrast to Judah. There's also a contrast between Judah and Tamar and the grace of God. The story of Judah and Tamar is filled with broken promises, deception, prostitution, and immorality. What a contrast to the undeserved grace and mercy of the Lord God to use both of them to advance the Bible thread that led to Jesus' birth. Tamar is one of four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, recorded in Matthew chapter 1. The other three are Rahab, who we are going to meet in our next episode, Ruth, and Bathsheba. These four women were likely Gentiles, and three of the four were certainly not models of a godly moral life. Yet God stepped in and used them to advance his plan to save the world. We also take away the understanding that our God is looking for repentance and transformation in people's lives. We see that in Judah's future. After Joseph became the number two guy in Egypt overseeing the food supplies, Judah was willing to give up his freedom, even to give up his own life, in order to rescue his brother Benjamin and to avoid burdening his father Jacob with the loss of another son. Judah's repentance led to transformation. Our God, because of what Jesus accomplished, is looking for repentance and transformation in our lives too. And maybe our, our final takeaway is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the first century Christians living in Rome. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is working out all things for our good, despite our mistakes and failures. And that's because he loves us. 
True Crimes, Bible Edition 2. Once again, despite the criminal activity of people, God can use it to work out His plans. In our next episode, we will meet another Gentile woman by the name of Rahab. If you have any comments or questions regarding this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. Thanks for listening, and God bless.